Good morning. Welcome to worship. Uh, I'd like to go through a few announcements from the back of the bulletin before we go into our worship service. The first is, you'll see in bold at the bottom middle, is that there's going to be a congregational meeting, um, which is going to be in here following the morning worship service, August 21st. So if you are a communing member, please make time for that meeting. We also send an email out explaining what this meeting is going to cover and what to think about and be praying about as we go into it. If you haven't received that email, let me or Don or Scott or any of the elders know. We'll make sure you see that. Second, the youth are meeting tonight at 7 p.m. in the Family Life Building. The Summer Bible Club will be meeting for the last time this Wednesday at 11 a.m. Um, you can come to that. That would be great uh, for your kids if they want to keep coming. Um, that has been a great time and kind of a fun experiment, and we'll see if we can keep doing that again next summer. Lastly, you'll see in italics uh, to join us next Sunday after the worship service for a fellowship and farewell dinner for Scott and Karen and their family. Uh, please bring a covered dish if you're able, and the church will be providing meat, bread, and beverages and dessert. So please join us for this time. It will be uh, very special. That is all for our announcements this morning. Uh, the Lord welcomes you into worship. He empowers you to worship. Um, and he will uh, be good to you uh, when you come to him by faith. So let's take a few moments to uh, quiet our hearts and our minds and prepare to worship him. The Lord is good to us. He not only brings us into worship, but he keeps us within his family um, by his good care. Uh, that's what our call to worship is about. Would you please stand for our call to worship from Jeremiah chapter 46? 
starting at verse 27. This is God's call. But fear not, O Jacob, my servant, nor be dismayed, O Israel. For behold, I will save you from far away and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have quiet and ease, and none shall make him afraid. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, for I am with you. I will make a full end of all the nations to which I have driven you, but of you I will not make a full end. I will discipline you in just measure, and I will by no means leave you unpunished. This is God's call to us to worship and his care for us within the church. Uh, Would you please worship with me with hymn number 32, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Let's sing together. Lord God, you have saved a people from far away. That is us. Holy Spirit, you are with us this morning, and we pray that you would be a part of every aspect of this worship service. 
Lord, the punishment that we deserve, the full punishment, Jesus, you have taken upon yourself and have satisfied in full measure. You've died in our place and you have risen from the grave to new life. And with that new life, you have promised us and granted us this eternal life for all who come to you by faith. God, you have been faithful to a sinful and rebellious people. And we praise you this morning for bringing us here for this opportunity to worship you, to reflect on your love and your grace for sinners. Lord, as we continue into this worship service, as we are about to witness your grace in the sign of baptism, would you lead the way? Would you bless us by this time of worship? Would you change our hearts? Would you cause us to be overflowing in love and in remembrance of the gospel this week? Holy Spirit, we love you, and we thank you for this time. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. In the Old Testament... When a boy was born to a family that was part of God's covenant community, he was uh, initiated into that community by circumcision. That was the sense that, that because he was born to believing parents, he was part of God's people. The New Testament says exactly the same thing. It's in 1 Corinthians 7. It says that when a child is born to even one believing parent, that child is holy to God. Holy here means set apart for God. It is God saying that he loves our children and that they are his children even more than they are ours. That's a great thing. But if, if we're to you know, initiate our children into this covenant relationship to God to be part of this community, uh, they can't really be kind of active participants, at least at the baptism. So what is, what is actually being said here? What is being said by baptism? Well, it turns out I don't think that it's what's being said is our words to God. We make some promises. We do recognize that there's a commitment that's called for, particularly on the part of the parents and the church, in the raising of the child. But that's responding to God's words, which are portrayed for us in the act of baptism. I'm going to read uh, what is surely an odd section of Scripture. This is in 1 Peter chapter 3. Here's what it says. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us, the unrighteous, to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went to and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I'll just tell you right up front, I don't know what to make of Jesus going to preach to spirits in prison, and I, I'll take your guess as good as mine on that. But I will say this, it's very clear, Christ, the righteous, suffered for the unrighteous. And that brings us to God. That's our reconciliation. It's not something we do on our own, but Christ does it. And then he links it to baptism, okay, so he thinks about Noah. Noah came through the flood safely. And so when we look at this promise of God, it doesn't just come with his promise of salvation. It also hints at a very, very serious judgment. All of humanity was under that judgment, and God, through that flood, saved eight. In the midst of judgment, he rescued eight. When you see this baptism, what you're to see here 
is a statement about God's judgment. It describes the water being poured on, and you can imagine, he goes, it's like removing dirt from the body. That's what we do. We pour water on it and washes dirt off. He goes, but that's, if that's all you see, you've kind of missed the point. What's being said in baptism is that we're under a judgment because of what's dirty about us and our souls. But God says you can appeal to Him to be clean. You can appeal to Him for a clean conscience. And so this water holds out a promise to everyone who sees it. If you're here today looking on the baptism, and of course, for Lily, it's a promise too. It's a promise to her that when she wants a clean conscience, God will give it generously. He loves to give cleansing. So I want all of you to watch the baptism and in, in it see not just a sweet moment, an emotional or sentimental moment. I want you to hear with your eyes the very promise of God that if you seek a clean conscience, that though we are unrighteous, he will cleanse us completely. That's what's being pictured here. Baptism now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. God, what you've promised in baptism, now give to me. That's my salvation. I couldn't achieve it on my own. My own. I was never going to clean myself up sufficiently, but you will. Will you trust his promise as you see this baptism and remember it that your sins, your unrighteousness was washed away when Christ died and rose again? That is your salvation. I'm going to ask if uh, Cody and Anna will bring up Lily Keith. When we practice this baptism, you've been here before. You know this is God's promise to, to you and to Lily Keith and to all your children, as it is to all of us. And so when you hear promises, God calls you to believe them and to respond to them. And so we're going to ask you to take uh, vows, promises that you will respond to God's promise in baptism on her behalf, and you'll pray that God will help her respond to them as well. And I'm going to ask you, as you hear these promises, that you're going to respond. That you hear God's promise and say, okay, knowing God's promise to this family and to Lily Keith, we're going to help bring about what God has said he will do in the church by assisting and helping raise the children. And before we ever respond to God, before we ever do it, we seek God's help. And so the first thing we want to do, even before we make vows, is to pray. And Elder Mike Forster, wearing the hat of Elder and maybe a couple of others, great-granddad and more, uh, is going to offer our prayer this morning. Let us pray. Lord, our most merciful God, you are an all-powerful God. You call us to know you to trust you, and to love you. We pray this morning that you surround Lily Keith with your love, fill her with the Holy Spirit, that she may live each day in a way that's pleasing in your sight, growing always in the knowledge of your love. Dear Father, we ask your special blessings on Cody and Anna. Give them wisdom, give them patience as they seek to raise Lily in the way that leads to life eternal. Through the grace extended to us through your Son, our Savior, receive her today as a child of the covenant and grant that she may receive the fullness of your grace. And may your spirit live and work in her, and may she be yours forever. We ask all of this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Knowing God's promises and trusting God's help, I ask you to take these vows with hope that God will fulfill in you what you're promising.
Do you acknowledge Lily's need of the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ and the renewing grace of the Holy Spirit? Do you claim God's promises, covenant promises in her behalf? And do you look in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ for her salvation just as you do for your own? Do you now unreservedly dedicate your child to God and promise in humble reliance upon divine grace that you will endeavor to set before her a godly example, that you will pray with her, that you will teach her the doctrines of our holy religion, and that you will strive by all the means of God's appointment to bring her up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. This is a covenant community. That is, we belong together to God, and so we walk together and we help each other. And I'm asking you, for the sake of this church and any other to which the Lord may call them, to, to promise as well that you will come alongside them. If you will do so, I'll ask you to raise your right hand. Do you as a congregation undertake the responsibility of assisting these parents in the nurture of Lily? Will you raise your right hand? Lily Keith Ming, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And may that Spirit give you eyes to see and a heart to receive in faith that lasts your whole life and into eternity. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we receive your promises by hearing them and looking at them, and we pray you would confirm them by helping us believe. I pray for Lily. She will grow up hearing about your love, hearing about your faithfulness to us, learning to trust and hold on and cling to you, making your love her delight, seeing in Christ her hope, her life, her redemption, her wisdom. I pray that you would draw her into a close walk with you so that she will never remember even one day in which she did not trust the love of Jesus. I pray that you would make her a blessing to her home, I pray that you would make her a blessing to First Presbyterian Church. I pray that as you cause her to grow up and you care for her, she would become a blessing to whatever community she finds herself living and sharing the, the, the favor of God and that life in Christ would follow her everywhere. Father, we pray that you would help us believe that you have indeed cleansed us, not just from dirt on the skin, but from the the dirt of an unclean conscience, marred by sin and guilt and shame and corruption. You have freed us from our sins by Jesus Christ, by his death on our behalf, the righteous for the unrighteous. And through his resurrection, we have eternal life. So we praise you. Help us believe. Help us live as your children, adopted into your family, received as holy, and destined to be like Jesus, whom we love and in whose name we pray. Amen. The point of baptism is that God gives promises and gifts and grace generously to us. And then we, in receiving his generosity, want to respond with our own generosity. Would you respond to God's gifts to you by giving tithes and offerings?
Please pray with me. God, just like baptism, we, you have been gracious to us before we have ever wanted, had ever wanted to uh, love you or follow you. Lord, from before we were born, you had a plan for us. You had planned out every day of our lives, every second. Lord, you are sovereign over all things, over all of our lives, and you have given us all things for your glory and for our good. So as we give our tithes and offerings, we pray that you would bless these tithes and offerings and use them for your church in great and glorious ways, and that you would continue to grow in us a heart that is overflowing in love and grace in which you have um, given to us first of all. Lord, all good things come from you, and so we give back uh, in your name. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would stay standing, we will sing hymn number 189, 189, which is Jesus Loves Me, This I Know. Let's continue worshiping together. Please be seated. Would you take your Bibles, or if you wish, the pew Bible that's there uh, for you, and turn to Psalm 5, Psalm number 5. Now, how do we get to Psalm 5? Well, this summer, we're uh, working our way through a number of different psalms, selecting them by their topics. Um, John Calvin called the book of psalms, the whole collection of psalms, an anatomy of the soul, the ability to draw out of us every part of us. And so we've seen psalms that deal with guilt and shame, anxiety and fear, psalms that deal with thankfulness, and praise, and wisdom, and God's care. And so we want to say there's a psalm for every occasion. Psalm 5 is a psalm for when you're angry. 
It's not the only one. There are several others, but this one is what we're going to examine today to think about how would God uh, lead us when we're angry? You know, assuming that some of you ever get angry. Um, David Pallison, a counselor and therapist, teacher of counselors, wrote a book called Good and Angry. And uh, chapter 2 was titled, Do You Have a Problem with Anger? No, Do You Have a Serious Problem with Anger? And uh, here's what he said. Yes. That was the whole chapter. Anger is a powerful emotion, and God gets angry. How are we supposed to handle this powerful emotion in our lives? Psalm 5, 5 helps us. Would you, before we read it, pray with me? Father in heaven, we are often ruled by It comes upon us and consumes us and everyone else around us. I probably fear my anger. I know that there are probably other people who do too because they've experienced it. And anger is something that you intended to protect and to help. It is part of your own character. And yet we are um, powerless to manage it. So we pray as, as people who are weak coming to our strong God who loves us, would you help us? Learn how to handle and process our anger with faith and before you in a godly way that even our anger would be a part of how we worship and trust you. Father, would you open our minds and our hearts to receive your precious and true word as we read it? And would you accomplish your purposes that please you, make us like Christ? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 5. Beginning in verse 1, this is God's word. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groanings. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. If you are not a God who delights in wickedness, evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out. For they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them. Those who love your name may exult in you, for you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover them with favor as with a shield. This is God's word. It is completely true and utterly trustworthy. <clears throat> what happens when you get angry? Now, you might be thinking, well, I usually have this conversation in my head and I go through how I'm right and that other person's wrong or something like that, and that's true. But what happens when you're angry every single time is that you perceive that something you value is threatened. That's what happens when we're... I mean, that's what has happened. That's what provokes anger. Something that you value, you believe is threatened. And then you begin to feel this inner hostility toward the threat. What happens at the same time is that your body engages the sympathetic nervous system your blood vessels dilate your pulse and respiration rate increase your body gets a jolt of adrenaline you literally get stronger and faster you are gearing up for a fight what anger does is lets you say to this thing that's threatening something that you love I intend to annihilate you. 
I'm neutralizing the threat, and your body is gauging for it. Your mind is gearing for it. Your emotions are gearing for it. You are ready to, pers- to, to take out what is causing danger to something you love. Now, that's all well and good. There's a huge problem, though, because we're sinners. When that power to destroy starts to get engaged, what happens when there's something that's twisted or distorted about it? There are about four ways anger can go wrong. First, something that I value could be valued improperly. I want to protect it because I value it, but it's really not something that ought to be protected. Here's an example. Suppose I have set my agenda for the day and someone comes along and disrupts what I had planned for my day. And then I start to get angry. I'm ready to destroy this person because they're, dis- they're threatening my agenda. I've valued what I have planned for my day more than I've valued this person. My values are out of whack and so my anger is twisted and distorted. Or I perceive a threat when there's no threat that's really there. Uh, an example of this m- might be uh, when someone violates my sense of preference or style. They live in a way that I go, I don't approve of that. That's not the way I think they ought to live. And suddenly I find myself angry at them because they've offended some sense of, of mine when really nothing about me was threatened at all. That's just one example. You can come up with many more Or maybe I'm right. Maybe there's something that's really valuable and there's a real threat. But then my anger engages my words and actions and starts to come out in a disproportionate and destructive way. You absolutely know this experience. Suppose someone uh, hacks one of your social media accounts and start scamming people so it looks like you're doing it. That was, that's a real injustice. There's a real sense of, of righteous anger at the lie and someone using your name and taking advantage of your friends. But you're, so you're all irritated by it, but then your irritation shows up in the way that you treat your family who weren't part of the scamming. You ever get irritated and it spills out on the people who aren't guilty? That's a problem with anger. Now, there's one more. This is when you don't get angry. God gets angry. Jesus shows us he went to the temple and threw the tables over because he saw that people were disrupting worship. Instead of making it a safe place to worship, they were keeping people from worship. Or he went to the tomb of Lazarus. And while he was with them, he saw the grief, he saw the havoc that death was wreaking, and he was angry at at the grave and death, and he acted God gets angry. And so if we just said, well, it would be easy. I'll just always try not to get angry. We're actually denying a part of the way God made us to be human and a part that's God-like. So you're supposed to get angry in the ways that God gets angry, at least part of the time. And you're supposed to process it. Now, You might get the advice of, look, you know, your anger is uncontrollable. It never does what's right, and that's all true and well and good because you're a sinner. So maybe we should just stuff it. I'm just going to try to fold my arms and close my eyes and certainly close my mouth and just try to keep it all in. Well, sometimes that may be effective. Often it's not. And what's maybe even worse is that it can be self-destructive. The burning takes place inside. So instead of it being released on something that was a threat that consumes you, all right? So maybe I'll just vent it. You know what? God can sort it all out. I'll just indulge my anger, and what happens, happens. Well, that's destructive, violent, perhaps deadly. Well, how can we do it? What are we supposed to do if I can't indulge it and vent it, or if I can't control it and just stuff it all in? David says, you come to God with it. You process this anger with him. Psalm 5 is a prayer. And David has enemies who are violent and they're deceitful and they are manipulative. He describes their, their, their throat is like an open grave. Their words are not true They're bloodthirsty. 
David is talking about people who are seeking his life and they are rightly, there's a righteous anger here. And yet he is working through this anger with God in prayer. So what's this prayer like? Well, look at verse 1. Give ear to my words. The first thing that he does is he says, God, you got to hear what I have to say. And this is something that we want to do. I'd like to give voice and words to my anger. Usually I want to give voice and words to my anger at a person with whom I'm angry. Somebody cuts me off in the road and I'm like, I would tell you a thing or two. Although if they ever stopped and said something, I'd be like, uh, I don't want to talk about this, you know. But I want to give words to my anger. I have the conversation, maybe nobody else does this and I'm embarrassing myself, but I have the conversation in my head that I, you know, with someone where I go through what I would say and what they would say and it goes back and forth and I always win. I always come out right. And their person realizes how wrong they are. And I want to give words to my anger. And David says, I've got these words about my anger. God, will you listen? Listen to my words. But he doesn't stop there. Look at the next thing. Consider my groaning. You ever had the moment where you're kind of just so mad that, that you can't even describe it? You just kind of grit your teeth and there's a boiling and you can't even find the words that really get it? All you can do is growl, animal-like. David says, God understands that language. You ever heard a person just, and you know something's wrong. You're like, so what's up? And they're like, I don't know. And they can't find the words for it. David says, God, consider, understand what I can't put into words. He understands precisely. He speaks the language of groaning and sighing. Do you ever think of your sighing and your groaning as a prayer? David would have you think that way. And then, verse 3, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning, I pre- oh, sorry, verse 2. Give attention to the sound of my cry. When I'm crying, God, would you notice? I've forgotten sometimes when I've cried, but God has not. He pays attention to your tears. In the scene when he goes to the tomb of Lazarus, he's, going, he, he's, he's angry. It talks about this boiling in the pit of his stomach. The language in Greek is he is angry. And yet, he cries with them. I want you to recognize this. Most of your anger is going to come when you were hurt. And so it often starts with tears. Uh, you know, uh, counselors describe the process of grief. Anger is one step in the midst of it. Anger comes often after we're hurt. And so there are tears. And I want you to know, you've never cried alone. This is what the, the scriptures tell us to respond to other people is to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. And do you not know that God will keep his own commands? You may have felt alone. You may have looked around at the people who you thought would be there and they weren't. You have never cried alone. Even before you were angry, God was gearing up for it. He, he weeps with us. He hears our prayers. Now, your words, your sighs and groanings, your tears, these are all prayers to God. But there's another component that, that David does here that's really instructive. Verse 3, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. Now, let me get a little technical when you translate from Hebrew to English, sometimes it doesn't translate easily and nicely, so you have to make a decision about how to translate a word, and you supply a word because it makes sense. And, and so it really doesn't say, I prepare a sacrifice. It just says, I prepare 
for you? Well, the reason they supply sacrifice is this is the word that was used in Leviticus when it talked about how the priests were to lay out the sacrifices. I'm not convinced, and I hope that you will trust me on my research here a little bit, that maybe sacrifice isn't the best translation, but he's saying, I prepare my words and my prayers for you. David is not merely saying, just unleash whatever you have to God. He's saying, spend a moment to reflect. Think. It's not that you can't just open up. You can do that too. But sometimes he wants you to say, spend very planned, specific time talking to God about these emotions, particularly anger. Take a second. Take a deep breath. Write something down, perhaps. This is part of the way that we prepare our prayer. We arrange it. And I want you to notice what happens right after he says, I prepare for you and watch. He begins to think about what God is like. God, you don't delight in wickedness. Evil doesn't get to dwell with you. This evil that I'm experiencing, this hurt that I'm going through, these twisted ways the world is that are weighing down on me, that are provoking me to anger, this does not get to stay because you're in charge. The boastful will not get to stand. These manipulators and liars are going away because I know something about you. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Notice here the strength of Paul of, of David's language. God, you hate these people that I hate. You abhor not just their evil, but the very ones who perpetrated against your beloved child. God's anger is powerful. Now, I need you to hear that because sometimes we're like, there's a lot that's wrong, and I don't think God's doing anything about it. This person who sinned against me just keeps going on sinning against me, and nothing seems to happen. I feel pain. They're doing just fine. God, where are you? Don't you feel this? Don't you notice I've been praying about it and talking about it. Spend a moment to meditate with David. God, who are you? You're a God who does not leave the guilty unpunished. You hate wickedness. The boastful will not stand. There is a coming judgment, and it will consume all evil. Now, this is going to shape what he's going to ask for in a minute, but before you see that, you might want to say, Man, that is good news that God really hates evil and this evil that hurts me, he's going to deal with. Till you remember, oh, wait a minute, I'm guilty too. And this very thing that, is, that, that, that attracts me because I love justice repels me. Um, Andrew Bonner, a Scottish pastor, tells the story of a Greek painter. And the painter had painted this picture of uh, a boy holding a bowl of fruit. And he had painted the fruit so realistic that birds were swooping down and smacking into the, the painting trying to get the grapes or whatever berries he had painted in there. So realistic was his painting. His friends marveled. That's amazing. And the painter was a little sad. He goes, but if I'd painted the boy more realistic, the birds wouldn't come. Well... Think about this. I long for justice because I see a world that's so topsy-turvy and full of evil. I long for it to be gone, for the world to become the very good place that God made it. But I recognize that if God got rid of all evil and all people who do evil, that comes back on me. It's a, it's a, it's a thing about God that I go, sounds great, but it's terrifying. David does not go to God saying, 
they're bad, but I'm good. Look what he says, verse 7. I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. David comes with awe and a sense that it's God's steadfast love. Notice he doesn't say anything about himself. It's all about the way God welcomes the unrighteous. I was the wicked with them, so I've come to God and say, help. The wicked are are persisting in their rebellion. They refuse God's help. They remain boastful, saying, I will do my own thing. David bows his knee to God and says, I would be wicked except that you've got to protect and save and heal and cleanse. It's your steadfast love. In the New Testament era, what we say is, Lord, receive me for Christ's sake, not my own. Because Christ died for me and reconciled me because he dealt with my sin, because he suffered the righteous one for the unrighteous one, that he promised a clean conscience that I can't generate on my own. So I come to you appealing to your steadfast love that you give generously. So I'm asking God for you to receive me. And notice there's a little confidence. It's, it's almost hidden. You'd miss it. Verse 2, my king and my God. He knows who he's talking to. A God who will clear out his own wickedness and receive him. A God who gives himself to us. And as you know, this God who is completely just and righteously angry at sin, but who will forgive and set his love on those who come to him, it shapes what he's going to pray for. Look what he prays for. Verse 8, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. Because of my enemies, make your way straight before me. His first prayer is not fix them. Change my circumstances. Clear out these people who are hurting me. He says, the first thing I got to pray for because I know you is put me on a righteous path. Show me the path to go. You ever had this moment where you're so furious that you're almost blind to what you should do? That's David here. And he goes, you've got to set a path out before me. You've got to lead me. I can't decide how to go. And so he says, just you clear a path. And, and so sometimes in your anger, the thing you do is just the next thing in front of you. You're so angry, the thing you should do is do the dishes. You're so angry, the thing you should do is just get to the stop sign. And take a deep breath. Just the next right thing in front of you. Help me walk in your way, because walking in your ways is better than being safe. Now, he doesn't stop there. He knows something about God. He says, these people have no truth in their mouth. They are set on destruction. All they do is lie and flatter And so, God, make them bear their guilt. Let them fall by their own counsels. Let them receive their just reward. Let them be treated as they have treated us. Make them bear their guilt. That's a hard prayer, isn't it? Do you you pray that one often? One of the commentators I read said this, we may wish... Prayer could be all courtesy and finesse. If so, we've no business messing with the Psalms. Prayer must often have a hard edge about it because it has to deal with evil. There is a ruggedness about true biblical piety. God calls you to be honest about the way the world really is. And the world really is this broken And if you cannot recognize that what sin rightly deserves is for God to consume not just the sin, but the sinner, you will never really understand what Jesus accomplished at the cross for you. 
You will never have the right gratitude until you realize that God could have answered this prayer of David's toward you and me and let our own guilt fall on us. When you see that God answered this prayer not by letting us be consumed by our guilt, but by Christ being consumed because of our guilt. He bore it for us. Then you will say, now I get the cross. It's magnitude. And David understands it. He doesn't have it all in mind yet, but look what he says after he prays for these rebels to be destroyed. He says, let all who take refuge in you rejoice. He says, God, I know that you intend to forgive your children, that they won't bear their own guilt, but you forgive and you give joy and protection. This is what he expects. This is what he prays for. God, destroy the guilty and save those who seek refuge in you. Now, so this is going to bring you to a difficult What happens when you're angry with someone who's a believer. And like, I want them to bear their guilt, but that doesn't seem right. I want you to recognize that maybe today you're like, I, they did this bad thing, they hurt me, and it seems unjust, they're going to just get out of it. I want you to know that the day is coming when you will look on Jesus. You will see the scars in his hands. You will recognize what he paid, not just for you, but for them. And you will be satisfied as the Father is satisfied. He is satisfied that their sins are covered and paid for. You will be too. In fact, I will tell you what will really happen. The day is coming when this believing brother or sister with whom you have such trouble when the two of you will be reconciled because you have found that you have both drawn near to Christ, you have both taken refuge in Him, you have both become Christ-like and God has cleared out what was once between you the way He has cleared out what was once between us and Him. To take refuge in Christ is to find real refuge. And so, you who've come to refuge find that he will protect you from that evil world. You bless the righteous in verse 12, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. The shield he has in mind is the big, tall shield that, that sometimes a soldier would only have a shield, no weapon. And he would stand with this shield, holding it, protecting someone with the weapon. And it would be almost a full-body shield. And that's what he has in mind here, that God is a shield for you, protecting you, so that the the evil you experience, that which even provokes your anger and brings about your tears, this thing can only touch you so deep as God who protects you permits because he stands in front of it and bears its worst blow. And David says, okay, God, I'm really angry, but I remember that in the midst of this hurt, I'm still protected by you. He doesn't protect us from all evil and all experience of it, but he protects it from getting to your heart. Here's how I know. You're still holding on to him. You might say, barely. Well, that's how he's protected you. You haven't let go of him, and that means he has protected you from the worst of it. There's a story from a... It's one of those preacher stories. I'll just tell you, it almost sounds too great to be true. I think this one's real. It was a, a soldier in the Civil War. He, uh, his name was um, Carter Prince. And uh, he was shot in the middle of a battle, and it hit... The, the, the bullet hit the buckle on his uh, suspenders and began to press it toward him. But the suspender buckle was right over the New Testament that he was keeping in his shirt pocket. And so the, the buckle pressed through the New Testament, beginning in the book of Revelation and pressing all the way into it to the book of Mark. 
and then stopped. You take this out and look. Now, my guess is it still hurt. And he recognized how close he had come to being killed. It was right over his heart. And yet, the bullet could only penetrate so far as God permitted. God does not promise to keep you from every bullet. What he does say is, I will protect your heart. And he will take care of all evil so that you, his child, will one day be completely safe. Let's pray together. Father, when we talk about sin and its judgment, we first want to remember it would fall on us. And yet we admire and even desire your justice. We long for a world that is restored to the very good that you intended for it. Oh, Father, we pray, deal with the guilty, punish sin, clear anyone who will refuse to bow their knee to you, and rescue and give refuge to your children. We long for that day when we will look on our Savior and see him and see his kingdom in full. We pray for it almost every week. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you respond to God's word by taking your hymnals and turn to him 727? 727, lead me, Lord, lead me in thy righteousness. Let's stand and sing, 727. The God who shields you with his favor gives this blessing of his favor to all of his children. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful and he will surely do it. Amen.